Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I am here at day one of the Overland Expo. And I am here with a longtime friend and someone who has been a huge inspiration to me, Rochelle Croft. She is the co-founder of X Overland, which in my mind is the premium Overland video team in the world. And she is also the founder of the Excel's racing team. So we are going to talk about racing in the deserts. We're going to talk about traveling around the world. Uh, we're going to talk about how she manages traveling with Clay Croft because we have some shared experiences. <laughs> I'm, I actually may have spent more time in uh, Russian hotel rooms with Clay than you have. Uh, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's one, there's one pink Russian hotel room that really comes to mind that I think we have photos <laughs> of somewhere. Um, even the pillows had, they were hearts. So Clay and I had a very special moment in that. So thank you, Rochelle, so much for being on the podcast. Thanks to this week's sponsor, GCI Outdoor. Whether you're heading out for a weekend of adventure in the woods or to your backyard fire pit, GCI Outdoor gear is ready for whatever you have planned. GCI Outdoor has been around for 25 years, so they know what they're doing when it comes to the best in portable recreation gear. GCI has innovative products ranging from outdoor rockers to complete camp kitchens and everything in between. And with a limited lifetime warranty, you know they stand behind everything they make. GCI Outdoor Gear is comfortable, durable, and built for adventures, big and small. Try them out for yourself. Head over to their website at GCIOutdoor.com and save 10% off your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Thanks again, GCI. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, you're so welcome. Now, the first thing that comes to mind for me is what did you do before you started adventuring around the world? What was your life like before you decided, I'm going to put a truck in a container and ship it to Morocco and go race? <laughs> what was life like before that? Uh, that's a really good question. So Clay and I met in high school. We were high school sweethearts. I was awesome. 15. He was 16 or 17. I can't remember, honestly. Dated long distance. We got married very young. Our plan was when we got married, I was 20, he was 21, that mm. we were going to travel the world together. Oh, amazing. Because that's what we were waiting for. We were waiting for that moment. And then um, Cyrus came along. Okay. Surprise. <laughs> surprise. A good surprise, but it was a surprise. We were very young at the moment and we said, okay, well, we've always wanted kids. So we're going to have kids now and we're going to just flip those things around. Sure. So let's have kids. And then because we're brilliant, we decided to start a business <laughs> and have kids and be broke all at the same time sure. while dropping out of college. So <laughs> that's where that train headed. And Clay was figuring out what he wanted to do. He loved being outside and he just recently discovered um, filmmaking mm. and cinematography and he just fell into it. And I, knowing him as long as I had in high school through college, he is not someone you ever put at a desk and tell him to go to work. Sure. You do not box that guy in. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, get a camera. Let's do it. Um, so I was the kind of consistent, steady income at that mm -hmm. moment. I worked at coffee shops, which is why I love coffee. And I'll post on that sometimes. For sure. Yeah. You um, make great coffee. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he, we started a film business called Highline Productions. We still have that to this day. At that same time, I was pregnant. And so we were going down that road. So the way we paid the bills was he would shoot wedding videos, uh, soccer videos for seniors for mm. college applications. We did a few local commercials and that was how we got by. He got his experience that way. And so by the time 2010 rolled around, I was pregnant with Eli, who's our third son. And that was my life up until then. So we were married in 2004 end of 2010. And I will be the first to tell you, and Clay will maybe not say this because he's nice. <laughs> I was not a fun person to be around. That's a lot of responsibility. It was a lot of responsibility. It was very stressful. And I was an adventurous person. Mm. I grew up in Montana. I loved sure. doing things outside and I loved travel. And I felt like it was, that was my time where I was going to go and travel. I was in my twenties. Sure. And then I'm like, okay, I'm raising kids now and Clay's working on this business and he's getting to travel. Mm. So I was a little resentful that I was home and like I said, I had, I had issues. I had stuff to work through. <laughs> sure. Uh, a little depressed and, you know, some people will hear my story, but I being sexually abused at a young age, all that was feeding into it. It kind of all came to a head. Sure. And I was finally ready in 2010. It was like, I need to work on this. Mm. Like, this is not the person I want to be. I am not the best mom I could be for these kids. Mm. And this is not Clay's fault. Mm. And if I want my life to change, what do I need to do? And so Within this window between 2010 and 2011, we'd, that was when we started Expedition Overland in 2010. Sorry, in answer to your question before that, I was home with the boys. 
I was working part-time at home. How did you, how did you make that transition? You, you had this, this moment of awareness yeah. where you were recognizing that your life was not what you thought it would be, but you're now becoming a person you don't want to be. Yeah. How did you move from that place to where you are now? What were some of the changes that you made in your life that really made an impact? That's a really good question. I started reaching out to people that I didn't know. One, I recognized I needed friends. Mm. I didn't have a lot of friends because mm. a lot of people we went to college with had married and moved away or they just moved away. And we were the first ones to have kids in our circle. Mm. So I, it was just a very lonely time. We were young, we had kids and nobody else could relate to us. Mm. And we were trying to start a business. Mm. I realized right away, I need like-minded people around me to help me because I I'm not doing well on my own. And so I started reaching out to some girlfriends I had. One of our mentors that we'd gone to Uganda with in the past that Clay had gone on some trips with, he had a daughter who lived in Bozeman. And I was literally like, Duncan, I need to meet your daughter. I don't Mm. even know her, but I just need a friend. Mm. And which is scary for a girl to come out. Like girlfriends are really hard to find. Mm. I needed something. So that was the first step I took. So you feel like reaching out to make other connections with people that you trusted. Yeah. That was the first step. Yep. It absolutely was. And then what, what came next after that, that helped you continue to climb that ladder out of that place? Yeah, I think I knew in my, just in my being and in my gut that it was time for me to deal with my past Mm. and everybody gets to that time. Everybody gets that point at a certain time in their lives. You can't rush that. Even if you look at someone, you're like, oh, you need to deal with your stuff. You can't rush that. It's on your own time. We did premarital counseling before we married. And I remember our counselor is like, uh, you, this is going to come up. And I was like, no, I'm fine. It's, it's all good. And it took me seven years later to actually be like, oh, I need to deal with this. So I reached out to, I found counseling and local counseling. I found uh, just people in the church that I trusted. I literally was grasping for straws because one, nobody was really talking about that topic. And so I just started reaching out to different churches in the area. And I was like, can I, do you have a woman counselor? Can I meet with you? Do you have resources? And just kind of that, it finally led me to someone who could start helping me in that process. That was a big thing for me. No, that's, <laughs> no, thank you. That's, yeah. it's such an incredible journey that you have been on and you being vocal about those experiences. As I remember you, you describing to me soon after you started that process, the number of people that reached out to you yeah, that needed that touch point recognition that here is this person that has done all of these amazing things. And they're talking about something that I've experienced as well. Do you feel like you were able to help others like that? You had a lot of outpouring of, of folks reach, reaching out to you. Yeah, for sure. So after, um, to fast forward a little bit in 2014, that was the second rally I did in Morocco. Mm. And we ran kind of this whole campaign about, Hey, to raise awareness, to rediscover your voice. And I partnered with a nonprofit out of Atlanta. And the whole reason behind it was to tell people like, Hey, we need to talk about this, but don't get stuck in it. Mm. You can still go out and be the person you want to be. It might take a little extra work, but I'm out here racing in the desert because this is what I found, like kind of lit that spark in me. And that's why Morocco is so crucial also to my healing process. Mm. Cause I, I found that thing and that's not it for everybody. It's going to be completely different. You don't have to ship a truck to Morocco to do that. You know, right. for me, I needed a big like shift and jolt. And it just really drew me. And so I kind of, it definitely lit that flame in me again to be like, this is who I want to be. This, okay, here's, here she is. Like, Mm. it was like, I hadn't even met her yet. Being out there with these women and problem solving and having hard days and getting through to the other side, that was the person I knew I wanted to be. Oh, that's, that's incredible. And how did you find out about the Trophy Aisha de Gazelles? How did you even learn that it existed? Yeah. So Clay actually was my touch point there. He was in, I think it was Hollister where he met you for the first time. Sure. And we were, he was debuting our very first episode of Expedition Overland. And Emily Miller was there talking about this rally in Morocco. And Clay had met with her, chatted with her. He's like, hmm, my this might be good for my wife mm. <laughs> in a very loving way. She needs something like this. And he brought home this postcard and handed it to me. And I, I looked at it literally and was like, well, that'd be nice. Mm. Wouldn't that be cool? And I was telling you, I was not a nice person. <laughs> that was when I first heard about it. And then at our first SEMA show, you encouraged us to go figure out what we could do with Expedition Overland. I met my first teammate, Julie Meadows at the Max Jacks booth. And I'll never forget it. Brian McVickers was there and Julie and myself and Ben and I think one other guy. And she was like, hey, did you hear about this rally in Morocco? I was like, yeah, it sounds pretty crazy. And she was like, wouldn't that be kind of cool to do it? And I said, yeah, it would be awesome. I was like, well, I really like to drive. 
She's like, well, I'll learn to navigate. And then all these guys came around us, these men, and they were like, you girls need to do this. This is amazing. Mm. And I'll never forget that support that we had from them. It was really cool. It, mm. it really helped propel us. And that's literally how we started. The race was five months away. I, I knew nothing about raising money or driving in sand. I grew up in Montana. <laughs> I was like, I can drive in snow. Is it the same? I have no idea. <laughs> awesome. And that's... That's where it all started. So you're five months out. You reach out to the organization to find out what that means. <laughs> did you talk with Emily as well to get some insights? She was phenomenal. So she really kind of took the role of kind of the American liaison for mm. us because one, I didn't speak French and it is a French event. So I didn't even, the website wasn't even in English. Mm. Like, <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. And so she really helped. She had done it or I think she competed for three years mm. as well. And she got really passionate about it and wanted to include other women in this. And so she really helped hold our hands and go through the whole process. What truck did you take? So we shipped the uh, 2007 Toyota FJ and it was the Max Trax FJ Cruiser at the time. Okay, sure. And Max Trax, Max Trax came on as our first sponsor for the Rally H. Day Gazelles. Wow. I will never forget Brad doing that for us. It Brad, Brad is such a great guy. He's amazing. And he recognizes those, those leverage points. He's mm. done that for people. And he realizes like, if I do this thing, it will make a huge difference for someone. And I've seen him do that a few times. Yeah. Brad's an amazing dude. For sure. And he did that with Expedition Overland too. He saw mm -hmm. that in Clay and he was like, you know what? I've been where you are starting a business and I needed someone to believe in me. You were one of those people for us. And he was like, I will be your first sponsor. And he's still one of our longest running members. Yeah. Incredible. The whole organization. And of course, what Matt and Laura have done with it here in yes. the United States is, is so impressive. So, okay. Yeah. So now you've got an FJ Cruiser. You're going to go and race in Morocco. Yep. Did you do anything to the truck? What? How did you prep it for this? And how did you prepare yourself? Great question. So Emily, like I said, this was new for everybody. So she, for the first time, kind of got a training rounded up in uh, San Diego to teach us how to drive in the sand dunes. And so I flew into Las Vegas and met Julie, who had, I'd only met once. <laughs> and it was kind of that moment you get off the plane, you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. Like, I really how don't How is this going to really go down? How is this really going to happen? <laughs> yeah. And I remember, so we stayed with them at their house in Las Vegas. We drove to San Diego. We had a class and the only teacher that could teach us navigation had come in from Canada and spoke French. So it was a very heavy French accent trying to teach us how to use a map and plot points, which I'd never done in my life. And I'm still not good at it. It's difficult. I'm not. Thank goodness for navigators. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a little bit of that for a day. And then we went out to Glamis. And this is really cool. Rod Hall was there. Oh, um, wow. Because he was one of Emily's mentors and trainers sure. as well. So he, my first, one of my first experiences driving in sand in that FJ Cruiser was Rod Hall on my back seat. <laughs> and he's just like, gun it. You know, he's just, I looked at this big sand hill. I'm like, can I make it up that? He's like, I don't know. Let's find out. Put it down, hammer down, you know? And that was my training as we did other things too, but that was yeah. the moment that stood out and it was fantastic. That I is that memory. That is something about sand is that you have to trust momentum a little bit. Yes. People confuse speed with momentum, but speed rarely does what you want it to do in the sand, but <laughs> momentum true. makes a big difference. Yes. If you can just kind of maintain that momentum through the dunes with yes. just enough to crest the ridge, it totally makes a difference. Yep. Well, that, so that's your training. Yep. You've, that had, was it. you've had some navigation, <laughs> you've done some driving, the truck goes in a container. Yes. Thankfully. And, and then where did you fly into? Did you fly right into Morocco or did you fly into Europe first? Or We flew into Europe. It was one of the years where our official start for that rally was in Paris, which was oh. amazing. That is amazing. We were right across from the Eiffel Tower. It was gorgeous. And that year we were only one of two American teams. So we fly in our, the truck had been shipped to a friend in Belgium who drove it down to Paris for us. Um, Julie and I flew into Paris with all our luggage way too, we way overpacked as everybody does. Sure. The truck was way too heavy. Sure. We had like seven air filters. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> you were prepared. Very prepared. And, um, so we had way too much stuff. It was really heavy. And I remember we had to get something welded to the bottom. It was a skid plate that needed to be fixed. And we just drove the FJ down Paris. And we're like, that kind of looks like a service station. And we pulled in, not speaking a lick of French, trying to explain to this guy in English and charades, you know, sure, what I need done to the underside of this truck. And finally, we like run down the road and find someone that can speak English, can translate for us. And he comes back and translates. And then we get it figured out. And I was like, I 
haven't even started the rally yet and I'm already in a rally. This is like the most so cool. I've ever been out of my comfort zone mm. and it was so fun. Mm. I j- you just got to make fun of yourself. I'm, that's you, all you can do. You do. Yeah. You do. I mean, I look back at pretty much everything I've done yeah. <laughs> and can make fun of myself. <laughs> like, I'm like, why did I even do that last week? Yeah. I don't even know why yeah. I did Just put that the ego thing. Aside. <laughs> yeah. Got, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. The ego is all in our own mind. Yeah. There's, there's not a yes. whole lot of coolness happening. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you, yeah. you start in Paris. Yep. And how many teams were competing? I believe there was around a hundred and it was between 130 and 140. That is a lot. It's a lot. They're in their 30th year this year. So it's amazing. It's an amazing event. Yeah. One other American team. We just were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Like, Mm. you know, they're barking instructions at you in French on where to pull up and what time and what your start time is. And we're like, I I don't even know how to sticker a car. And we're supposed to sticker a car. And it was, it was a whole, it was just one thing after another. I'm like, I have no idea what we're doing. So amazing. Yeah. So then you, you drive from Paris. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. you probably end up in Marseille or something for the ferry. Uh, 10, nope. Tangiers on the other side. Yeah. What's sorry. What's the Spain side? Oh, so you, yeah, you went from out of um, probably Gibraltar or somewhere near there. I believe so. So you took a ferry Mm -hmm. over to Tangiers Yep. and then does it start in Tangiers? No. So then you drive eight hours to air food where you actually start. Yeah. That's a great area. And we didn't know that at that time, nobody had credit card machines anywhere or Mm -hmm. internet. So we didn't even know how to get from Paris to where the that was the was. first challenge. Yeah. And I remember we'd see another team and we were like, oh, thank God there's another one. And you're hoping that they're not lost too. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So then we ferry. That's an all night. I think we got on the ferry at midnight, barely slept. We forgot that our truck doesn't have, you can't have access to your truck when it's on the ferry, right. which all our food was in. So we only had enough change to scrounge up to like buy a croissant and we split our croissant <laughs> in, the, in the cabin. Oh, and then we get off in Morocco and drive to air food, which we didn't know where to go. There was like official policemen kind of pointing. It's all roundabouts, you know, if you've sure. been there and we're like, I think we go this way and this looks about right and figured it out. We made it. <laughs> That's so amazing. And then how long was the event? So the event, there is nine days. Uh, you have a prologue day, which they give you maybe three or five checkpoints. It's not scored, but it kind of sets the placement of teams on which courses they'll put you on throughout the rally. Okay. We thought we found our first checkpoint on the first day. We're like, this is so easy. And then we get there and it's the wrong one. We're like, oh crap, this is, this is how this is going to go. So you found a checkpoint, but not the one you thought you were going to find. Oh, interesting. Nope. That's challenging. Yep. There's, I think now they have up to five different groups. Okay. So you'll be A, B, C, D, E, maybe G. Sure. So you might find that red flag out in the desert, but it might not be yours. Got it. (laughs) And they won't tell you. (laughs) Now, were you also sleeping out of the vehicle too, or was there a bivouac? There was a bivouac. Yep. You're actually not allowed access to your vehicle at night because a lot of teams in the past have cheated doing that. They would put in GPS units. So in this rally, much like the rebel, you're not allowed GPS or electronics, all paper maps, compasses, rulers, and they would have teams in the past that would plant GPS units and all this stuff. So you lock your car at night, you actually turn in your keys and you leave. So you're tent camping it um, in kind of a roped off area, Sure. but they feed you. They have like trailer showers, um, very safe. It's a great experience. Yeah. Morocco is a beautiful country. It really is. So when you would navigate by paper map, Mm-hmm. And I'm asking the question because I just competed in the Trek event yeah. where I had the opportunity to do more of that kind of orienteering. Did you find that you focused more on, I want to know exactly where I am by triangulating or did mm-hmm. you use more, I can tell that I'm most likely on this road and that looks like that and you were doing more dead reckoning on the map. How did you guys find that you navigated efficiently for the race? Yeah, great question. And you'll see a lot of teams have different styles. So it took us a few days to figure out our bearings. Um, first of all, we always have a, uh, ah, forget what they're called. It's like a, a rally computer, but it counts down kilometers very precisely and it's calibrated to your truck. So honestly, that thing is our saving grace because we'll first put a map, a paper map down and we'll measure, okay, to get from checkpoint A to B, this is 27.5 kilometers at this heading. Okay. Now in Morocco, sometimes you can go a straight line into that heading True. in the U S you cannot do that, which is why the rebel, I think is, it's a lot more challenging in those ways. So you learn very quickly 
If you have a navigator that understands features and can pinpoint that feature on your map, okay, mm. out my passenger window, I should be seeing this mountain at around five kilometers. Mm. Okay, that's that mountain at five kilometers. We're in the right area. But then sometimes when you get to those checkpoints, they'll hide them like down in a divot so you can't see them. Or they'll put them behind a bush. Interesting. That's where you start triangulating to Got really it. pinpoint your exact position. Okay. So we kind of use all three. So you would, that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you would, you would take the gamble of we may just run right across it and yep. be very fast. Yep. If we don't, then we're not going to go and try to drive around until we find out. We're going to find nope. out exactly where we yes. are. That makes a lot of sense. The minute, the second you get the gut check of like, oh, I don't know where I am. You need to stop mm. because what, and this is a mistake we made. We were lost the whole first year in Morocco all the time because you keep trying to talk yourself into it and then you do what's called magic map. So you look at something and you're like, oh, that's totally that mountain. Yeah, that makes sense. And you kind of turn it. You're like, yeah, yeah, that's that, you know, ravine. Yeah, yeah, that is that. And then you convince yourself because as when you get lost, there's like a brain, I forget what it's called. There's a neurological reaction that happens and your body just, it has to know where it is. Okay. And trying to fill in the gaps. Yes. And so you'll make really dumb and irrational decisions based on, I just need to know where I am right now. That's why I I tell people the second you feel that something is off, you need to stop and figure it out. Because if you know at least where you are, even if it's, even if you can draw a circle, the size of an orange on a map of where you are, that calms that response down instead of just being like, I don't even know in the world where I am. Cause you'll go there. You're like, I don't even know. I could be in America, but I'm in Morocco. You just freak out. That's interesting. Yeah. I remember when we did when we did the uh, Outback Challenge in Morocco, which is a similar area to where you raced. And Nathan Nathan Hinman was my navigator and we're cruising along. We're kind of lost. Yeah. But we, we're generate <laughs> we're generally going in the right compass bearing, but uh-huh. other than that we're pretty much lost. Yep. And we're on this road and he says, oh, "I think I know where we're at now." And he's like, "We're going to come up, we're going to come up to this major road and you're going to make a left." And I'm doing 80, 90 miles an hour across the desert. Oh no. And then he realizes that it wasn't a road. It was actually the border. So we had somehow gotten ourselves into Algeria. Yep. (laughs) I've done that. (laughs) And we were trying, we were, we thought we were going in the right direction, but we were actually heading back into Morocco. Okay. So, and if it's middle of the night, can't see, (laughs) the lights only go so far. And all of a sudden we see like this hut illuminated. And then we see this bar across the road (laughs) and we see this Moroccan military military guy. And it, literally by the grace of all the gods, yep. we, I'm doing so, I'm, I can't stop. There's no way I can stop. Yeah. And he decides to open the gate. He flips no the, way. he flips the gate up and we never, I never lifted. I just kept, wow. Yeah. And Nathan and I laugh about that. That's still. amazing. It was an amazing, it's so, you can be convinced. Yes. And we were, we were convinced yep. that we were on Y road yep. going this direction. And we were actually on X road Yes, heading mostly in the same direction, but we were totally lost. Yes. Really interesting. Yes. And that's tricky in Morocco because the road on your map is probably not the road you're on mm. because over time you'll see, you'll have five roads right next to each other. Got it. You don't know which one is on the map that you think you're following. Mm. And that's something nobody tells you until you get over there. And I found that a lot of those maps over there were not accurate. There were features (laughs) that weren't there or like usually the mountains was, they were, that stuff was pretty good, but like a, like a Wadi or a Erd Mm -hmm. field or whatever was either bigger or smaller than, yes. And that was pretty challenging. Yes. And that's when to get into nerdiness of it a little more, you can, you get out of your car and you take your compass and you actually take a heading of the road that you're on. Okay. And you can compare that to the map to see if you're on the right road. Got it. As well as using your odometer to track. The other thing you can do is you can take a heading from what feature you think that is Mm. and see if that lines up with where you're at on the map. And did you find on your compass that you would just bake in the declination? Did you have a compass where you could just adjust for the magnetic declination and then you just stuck with it? We actually- Or did you calculate that each time? Nope. In Morocco, they would, with our checkpoints each day, they would tell us what to declinate our compasses to, which is great because that's, almost impossible to keep up with, sure. especially when we're moving at that pace. Sure. Um, there was some days if we had a really big transit day, we might move half a degree or a degree. Sure. But it was never too much. Um, in the rebel, that changes a lot more. Got it. Because the distances are longer? Yes. Got it. Yep. At the end of the Aisha de Gazelles, yeah. you've now completed this incredible adventure. Yeah. What were your big takeaways? Did that, did that feel like you came into 
this person that you wanted to be? What did you learn from that that mm-hmm. has now affected your travels and stuff going forward? I learned that one, I really love challenging myself and mm. I need to challenge myself because it's as humans, I think we all, your brain is wired to make you comfortable. And as soon as you are comfortable for a long time, it's harder and harder to get out of that comfort zone and to take a risk or to embarrass yourself, which really is just your ego at the end of the day. I also learned I was capable of a lot more than I thought I was. Um, It was so easy. Clay and I had been best friends for so long. It's just at home even. It's like, hey, babe, can you get that for me? Oh, hey, babe, can you do this? And of course, he's an amazing gentleman, so he'll do it. And when you're out there, you don't have that. I can't be like, oh, hey, can you go air down that tire or fix that tire? Nope, it's I have to do that. And even if I don't know how, I have to figure it out. It's a great experience because there's no one looking over your shoulder either to see if you're doing it right or wrong or maybe giving you advice, which is very well-meaning. Yeah, just a note to all that are listening. (laughs) Can we stop with the mansplaining? That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Because now I I hear it and I'm like, oh, I used to do that. Yeah. And I know it comes from a good place. Of course it does. Like I have no issues, but it, as women, we're so, we're already embarrassed that we're trying something new. So even if you're really trying to help give advice, it makes us second guess Mm -hmm. ourselves. And I did things that were totally wrong, but I got to the same solution. And then I was able to be like, okay, next time I'm going to try it a different way. And it just allows that space for me to mess up and make mistakes. So you found that you really appreciated the struggle. Yes. Being allowed to struggle. Yeah. Not in the moment I, maybe, but yes. I, I find that I'm that kind of a learner too. If I, if I don't have the struggle a little bit, it yeah. doesn't bake in as deep. If someone just helps me get to point Z too quickly without fumbling a bit along yeah. the way, I don't tend to retain it as well. Exactly. And, and I'll even get really mad Like, I'll be like, why don't you help me with this? And Clay's like, Hey, you want to do it yourself? I'm like, Oh, you're right. Okay. I'll figure it out. (laughs) Well, and you did, and you completed this amazing event. And then if I remember correctly, you decided to go back. You liked it enough that, or at least you liked the struggle enough (laughs) that I'm going to go do this again. Yeah. So what happened next? So these things are very addicting, which is why you see teams come back again and again. And maybe you've experienced this with your rallies or competitions. You're like, next time, Hmm. I'm going to do it this way. And so doing the first one, our goal was to have fun and to learn and to finish. We didn't want to disqualify. So we finished that rally and you learn so much, your on-site training, that I couldn't wait to get back. And I was like, I've got to get back. And then I saw the women and how they've done such a good job at that rally of giving you a platform because you have media, you have social, you have photographers and newsletters, and they really try to elevate these teams and what they're doing. Mm. And I looked at that platform and where I was at my journey. And that's when I was like, I want to go back and I want to use it for something that I can speak to, to hopefully help women or whoever in the world. So that was year two. And then from there, we went uh, right away again to year three in 2015. And so we got a little bit better each time. I think our first year we came in like 89th or something. Still awesome. Yeah, we finished. So the next year we were 48th. And then the year after that, I think we were 12th or 14th. I can't remember. That's amazing. So I was like, okay, we're getting better. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot what the question was. Totally just lost my train of thought. No, but that's also good too. What what I'm thinking of is what were like the key takeaways for you that then helped you go on to the next stage in your travels. So you, you do the Aisha de Gazelles for several years. You get all, you gain all of this knowledge and experience and confidence. Yeah. What did you then see as your next goal? Whatever that is. I mean, mm. what, what was this? Cause it's, there's this great opening that's happening. You're yeah. achieving all of this amazing stuff and then you want to go do something else. What becomes the next goal? Yeah. It was interesting because the next goal for me at the time was I wanted other women to experience what I had experienced. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew in myself the change that had taken place and the confidence that came with that. And I was like, more women need this experience. They need a safe place to learn, to make mistakes and to gain a little confidence. And so my, my kind of goal came from that was wanting to get more women involved in it. There was also other rallies I looked at doing, which I would still love to go do, but I don't think looking back, that wasn't really my primary goal. I would say it was getting more women in the space and waiting for the day when one of these would happen in the U S which I was really excited about and to help women with training and get them into it. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. So Emily Miller, who I 
look forward to having on the podcast at some point in the near future. Uh, Incredible person with a lot of experience around the world and as a business person and everything else like that. So she decides to start the Rebel Rally in the U.S. And now tell me how that came about for you and and what was the next steps for you? Yeah, I was really excited. That was in 2016 when she did the first one. And at the time, you know, for Expedition Overland, we had done Alaska at that point. We'd done Central America. And then I'd always really wanted to just do more in the U.S. And I was like, because I would hear we'd be at these events and women would come up and be like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. But I I can't afford to go to Morocco. That's just Mm. a big commitment. And it is. It's a massive commitment. And so finally, I was like, here's your chance. Now there's one in the U.S. And it's a third of the price. There's going to be training. You know, you don't have to learn another language. It's mm-hmm. it's a great entry point. And it's in other ways, it's a lot more difficult. I think it makes you a better navigator. So Emily, it had been one of her goals for a long time because she saw all these pieces and she was like, oh, if we could like put these pieces together, what could we create in the US? It would just be phenomenal. And so I got to be one of the first teams in 2016 in the inaugural event. And it's leaps and bounds different to where it is now. It's amazing to watch how she grows it and changes changes it every year and the mistakes they've made and then Mm. learned and applied it and made it an even better event. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. It seems like that she does, Emily does an amazing job of surrounding herself with exceptional people. Yes. Um, And anytime you do that, even if you get a couple things wrong, it's like when you surround yourself with that kind of caliber of individuals, yes, you don't stay in that place for very long. It quickly accelerates. Yeah. That's what I've seen. I mean, she's so impressive. Yeah, very true. I would agree 100%. Talk about, this is a question that I've always had about the rebel is how do they keep people from driving too fast? Because that is one of the challenges. It's very easy to say, like, I'm going to do trophy truck light and I'm going to drive super fast. Like, how do they manage that? Yeah. Making sure people aren't driving too fast because these are open public roads. Yep. So the way it's set up is the Rebel is one, it's not a race for speed. So you get no extra points for going faster. Um, it may save you time throughout your day to get more checkpoints. So there's that concept. It's it's a very different concept from like a Baja race where mm-hmm. you're just gun to the wall, see who gets there fastest. The other thing is, is she really ingrains in people that this car is your third teammate and it needs to get you all the way to day eight. Because if you break your car, which usually happens because you're going too fast, Mm. (laughs) you might not finish. And then look at all of that prep and work that you put into this and you made one dumb error and went too fast and now you have to drop out. So it's a combination of, of sportsmanship and mechanical sympathy that keeps people a little bit mindful of speed, but they don't have, they don't have any trackers on there. They do. So they can keep an eye on somebody doing 115. Oh yeah. So they (laughs) also have trackers. Yeah. They can tell how fast you're going at any time during the day. Um, And also Emily has worked really hard to get the permits to allow this many cars to go through these certain public lands. Mm. And she tells us all as teammates, we're like, Hey, if you guys don't respect this, we will not have a rebel in the future because we will get shut down. Um, So that's one aspect is everyone carries that responsibility. And then if it needs to come down to it, they'll just take points away. If you're speeding, they're going to dock points. That's good because it, it changes the nature of the event so much where it, it removes some of these really interesting skills. And and then it just becomes about who can build the biggest, fastest truck. Exactly. Um, And that's what I really like about it. I like the fact that there are all of these skills that in many ways directly correlate to travel as well, but it allows for teams to show up with a stock Tacoma. Yes. And if they've done all of their training and they've learned how to navigate, they can actually place really well without a lot of, of money being spent. 
Very well. She really encourages, she actually has its own categorization called the bone stock category. Mm. And that, that was actually the year my teammate and I won in 2019. We took a bone stock Lexus uh, GX460. That's right. And it, if you looked at that thing and the places we took it, it <laughs> like it didn't make sense. They're amazing vehicles though. <laughs> They're amazing vehicles. Um, and it's that thing she really wants to drive home is, hey, you don't need the suspension and then mm. all the things that we think we need, right? You do need to learn how to be a good driver because if you learn these simple foundational skills and practice them, you can take just about any car and do what we're doing over nine days. What was one of the craziest things that happened to you? You've done that three years yes, now? Sir. Okay. Yeah. So you've done three years of the rebel. What is yeah. the single most insane thing that happened in any one of those events? I want to oh. know. Oh man. <laughs> Maybe there wasn't one. Maybe. I mean, I think there's a lot that happened. <laughs> Maybe I block them out. There, there was definitely one area that we had the GX in and it was like, um, I forget where we were. We were in, we were in an open OHV area and it, sees a lot of side-by-sides and a lot of trophy trucks. It wasn't Johnson Valley. It was another one. And the whoops were like, I mean, just giant. giant. And it had gotten a lot of moisture before. And we had this, these two blue checkpoints that were up around this like Canyon kind of mountain. And then it would come back down to base camp. And so as usual, it's getting late. We're close to our time. And we're like, I think we can snag those last blue checkpoints. I think we can do it. Let's go for it. And I'm going and the road, the road, the track seems okay. And then we turn a corner and it's just ruts and whoops. Wow. And I, so those GX is on the back. You can raise the suspension if you're under, what is it? 18 miles per hour or something. So I would literally go at it at a diagonal and just creep down in this whoop and put the suspension up and then creep out of it. And it was, it took us probably three times as long as we thought it would take us. Did you make it in time? We did make it in time and we got one of them. Oh, that's good. So it was worth the risk. <laughs> it was worth the risk at that point. I don't I don't know if I would have done it again. If I would have known what that terrain is, I would have been like, it's not worth it. I remember talking to Joe Bacall and and I said, What are you gonna use for pre-running? He's like, I just take one of the one of the GXs. That's yeah. what they, they would just pull a GX out of like the test fleet in Arizona awesome. and go pre-run <laughs> the five hundred or the one thousand with totally stock vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, they are really amazing. Yeah. Amazing how how good they work. Well, so now pivoting a little bit from your successful racing career in the Aisha de Gazelles and the Rebel Rally, what were some of the things that you learned from that that you feel has directly translated to travel for you? Those takeaways Mm -hmm. that you found yourself employing when you're in Baja filming with X Overland. What were some of the things that you pulled away from the, that training yeah. and racing that you find applies now to travel? Yeah. First and foremost would be mental toughness because these are long rallies. They're eight to nine days plus travel time. And you're in the car 10 to 14 hours a day, give or take day after day, sleeping in a tent and the mental, you kind of, everyone knows you hit that wall mm. and you have a choice to make. Okay. Am I going to give up and just throw a fit? And just say, this sucks. And what am I doing here? And back off. Or am I going to push through that wall, Mm. have a good attitude, finish strong and do the best I can. Even, even if I just made a really horrible mistake, which we've done many times. So the mental toughness it takes to continue going, to have a good attitude, learn how to take care of your body and yourself Mm. to get you to the end and still come out with a great relationship with your teammate. Communication is the biggest takeaway for me. Because when we're on X Overland trips, watching it, a lot of people don't see it's it's a slog. It is a lot of work. We're filming, you know, filming comes first. So it's it's 12 to 14 hour days and you're with eight people and you're all sleeping together. You're working together. You're you're doing everything for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. So carrying all those skills through of communication and knowing when I need to walk away and just have a little bit of a space or alone time digging, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and being like, hi, I'm so exhausted. I don't want to run out there and get, do we really need this shot? Yes, we do because we're doing the best work and that's what it takes. Mm. I would hundred percent say the mental toughness and learning how to communicate effectively. On the, maybe the hard skill side, mm-hmm. how have you found that those navigation skills, I mean, it does make a direct correlation for my mind, but what were maybe some of the, some of the things that you took away that you realize, yes, now I'm a better traveler because mm. of being a racer. Driving skills for one was a big deal. Knowing how to listen to my car. I'm Clay is always getting so frustrated with me because I'm the one that's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's, I, it's fine. 
you know, and he's it's like, a Toyota, it's fine. It's a Toyota, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Rachel, you have to stop. If something doesn't feel right, we have to stop and take the time to fix it. And so learning how to be in tune with your vehicle um, how it's supposed to be feeling, what's off, get out and look at it. Don't be afraid to try things. If something doesn't seem right, even if, I'm really bad at mechanics. That is, I need to go to mechanic school. Sounds interesting. I'm really bad at it. I think Jeff or Clay told me they're like, just look at something. If something doesn't look normal, that's all we need to know. And then you can go from Makes there. Sense. Just taking those little technical skills is really helpful. Um, for us learning, I'm constantly working on my throttle control driving well because if the guys are flying drones or need a certain shot, they need a really smooth driver mm. and that it's a very complex machine. It is. So, and then in travel, just being in Morocco and interacting with the culture, being in the villages. And I loved the cool thing about that is you, you go through parts of Morocco. A lot of people don't get to see we're out there with nomads in the middle of the desert, just having the empathy for people of, Oh my gosh, this is your life. You live here with your two kids in the middle of the desert and you have a goat and this, this is it. I don't, I don't think anybody that sees that wouldn't be changed or moved by that. So it's all of those pieces come into play for me. How, when do, I'm you traveling. how do you feel like those experiences changed or moved you? It's a good question, Scott. I think they just continually remind me that my little box of a world is not all that there is in life. There is a big world out there and we can, especially in America, it's just very easy with everything we have going on to be very, what is it? Introspective, mm. which is, can be a good thing, but it can also kind of dictate a lot of things around you. I think that's why we love to push people even on X overland to cross a border and to experience another culture. Because when you interact with another culture and you see how others live, I think it just gives you such a respect for other people in the world and why they do the things they do. It makes sense. You know, it's, it goes back to the age old quote, like walk a mile in their shoes. It's so true. Well, and you can realize that what may on the surface appear as having less than yeah. oftentimes is the opposite where they have much more than we do, Yes, which is they laugh more, yes. they spend more time with their families. Yes, They spend more time preparing meals and interacting with their neighbors and their friends. Yes. So it is, it's very easy to look simply at the world through our own lens, mm -hmm. um, which gives us it. We miss out on that opportunity to change. Yeah. And I think that that is where travel is so beautiful is that it just opens your mind to the fact that there's a thousand different ways to live a million yeah. different ways to live. If I take a little bit of the good from each of those things, my life might actually change for the better. Yep. Absolutely. I love, I call them nuggets. I love taking a nugget kind of, of information from where I go that, mm. that impacts me. It might not impact anybody else, but it made a difference to me, whether that's a book I'm reading or a show I'm watching or somewhere I'm traveling, I can always learn something and get something out of that, that can better my life. Speaking of, kind of on that front, mm -hmm. if, if someone was to come up to you, like let's say a family member that has been following your adventures around the world and they want to start to travel and they said, Rochelle, what advice would you give me? Mm being new to overlanding, what advice would you give someone that they're new to going and seeing the world? I would say stay teachable. Try not to carry our own biases into another country because anytime we travel, it's like going into someone else's house. How do you act in someone else's house? You don't walk in and be like, well, I demand uh, this food or why don't you have this? You know, it's, it's their house. You, you don't live there. And just having a lot of respect and being very teachable um, is a great place to start, whether going up to the state park or in another state, that's not your house either. Mm. You know, they have even by states, I see there's a little different culture and things that we have differently. So just be willing to be teachable and to learn. And you don't need all the fancy gear. I know at X Overland, we have a lot of gear, but we run a production company out of those trucks sure. and we have different obligations. So that's how we have traveled. But I love being able, like Kurt does. And I know you do. You throw a stove or a jet boil in the back of a car and just go somewhere. And you will actually learn more from that experience of what you really need or what's important to you to make that a better travel experience for you. Yeah. And there's, there's a million different ways to travel. And I think being very well prepared with a lot of high quality equipment and especially high quality vehicles, yep. you can actually stick closer to a plan. So you can oftentimes see more, mm. you have less interruptions because 
you don't need to go find this thing or that, or the vehicle doesn't have a problem. So yep. I think being well prepared, like I see with X Overland, it does have its advantages, but then yep. so does throwing a swag on the back of a motorcycle and just totally. figuring, figuring it out. <laughs> it so, all depends on what yeah, trip you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And I think that they both have very much have their place. Yeah. One of the things that I like to ask in these interviews is the books that have had an influence on you or maybe some takeaways, those mm-hmm. some, maybe some of those nuggets that you have heard from people that have been your mentors in your life or maybe a podcast that you like. I mean, obviously X Overland produces some of the highest quality video content in the world. So that's a great place mm-hmm. for people to go to learn more. But how about for Rochelle? What, where do you draw that inspiration from? Mm. I love a lot of podcasts. I would say, um, man, I was definitely on a, um, oh gosh, what is his name? I'm gonna have to get back to you on his name. It's okay. Obviously it's very important to me because I can't even remember. (laughs) I love a lot of Rachel Hollis's books. Okay. Um, She speaks a lot. Uh, One of the books that I loved, it was her first kind of nonfiction. It was called Girl, Wash Your Face. And it was basically a book on like, hey, if you want your life to change, then do something. Don't sit there expecting the same different results, right? It's stupidity to sit in the same thing you're doing and do it day in and day out, expecting mm. different results. Mm. So yeah, girl, I think wash that's, your a de- face, like, that's a definition of insanity, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Definition of mm. insanity. Yep. Mm. So it was just a very, it was a book I needed at the time to kind of, it was a good kick in the pants to be like, all right, you know what? Yeah. I need to do better at these things or this is something stirring in me. I just need to start, whether that's writing something down, making a plan, making a dream list of, Hey, in two years, do I want my life to look exactly like it does now? Or do I want it to look different? I would say that's one thing I really encourage people is, you know, we hear it a lot. We'll go back to your roots. Well, why aren't you doing what you used to do 10 years ago? I'm like, I don't want to be the same person I was 10 years ago. She wasn't awesome. Hmm. She was, she was okay, but I would never want to not grow because if you're not growing, you're dying. It's true. You know, yeah, it's very difficult to stay a steady state. Yeah. We're we're either getting, we're either getting stronger or we're getting weaker. Yeah. So that book to me was really helpful. Um, I love reading. It's called the gift of fear and it's, it sounds counterintuitive. It's actually a great book. We recommend it to a lot of our team members that travel with us. And it's really about listening to your gut instinct. And as women, I was never taught to do that. I was raised to be a good girl and you think the best of people and you don't make a fuss and you're kind. And so I always neglected my gut um, because I would rationalize it away. And so that book is really good about being like, hey, listen to your gut. Mm. So I recommend that to anybody traveling. And that's being kind to yourself. Yes. I think, I think a lot of times you see people and myself included, I've had to learn this, that being nice is not always being kind. No. Either to yourself or to others that you're usually better off being very clear that yeah. this isn't working or I need to set a boundary here or whatever, yes. especially with your travel mates. Yes. Like this, if you don't feel comfortable in a place, yep. everyone has to respect that this one individual feels like this is not right. We got to yep. move on. Yep. That's a rule in our group. If, if any one team member does not feel like this, we should camp here, stay here, talk to this person. No questions asked. We pack up and move. Yeah, that's and, good. Oh, another good book. Uh, boundaries. Read a book on boundaries. I was never taught that. I don't think a lot of people were. Um, it seems to be happening more and more now. Hmm. But uh, Dr. Henry Cloud wrote a really good one. And um, that really impacted my life for the better, especially when you travel to different cultures like Morocco. They do not listen to you when you say no. I don't know if you had this experience. Hey, no, come to my shop and yeah. buy. Maybe it's because I'm a woman. I don't Could know. Be. So come to my shop and buy a rug. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to. And they'll like literally like take you by the hand and want to pull you. And it was like, oh, you aren't offended if I say no. And I have to actually get very firm with you. Maybe I don't have to do that in the States, but learning boundaries is very key to Mm. travel and listening to your gut. Yeah. And having those in place with your travel companions, because that's when you can have those misunderstandings and hurt feelings can compound by not speaking up early about how we feel about something. Yeah. I'm no, still learning that. No, me too. Me too <laughs> very much. So I work, it's something I work on all the time. Need to yeah. do better at for sure. Those are great suggestions <laughs> on the book side. How do people find out more about the rebel rally Mm-hmm. Trophy Aisha de Gazelles. Yeah. Any recommendations that you would have for someone that's listening mm-hmm. that wants to go have an adventure like that? Yeah. So uh, if you go to, I can't remember if it's the or just rebelrally.com, it'll pop up right away. And they actually just launched a new website. It's gorgeous. 
it's full of information. It's full of a lot of training, trainings throughout the year that they will offer in different parts of the U.S. Also a Facebook group. I can't remember. They've got a few, but just the Rebel Rally Facebook group is a great place to interact with others. And a lot of the questions that I get asked, um, they're all kind of helping each other out in this group and answering those questions. Uh, the Rally H.D. Gazelles, you can also go to their website. If you just Google Gazelle Rally Morocco, it'll pop up. Sure. I believe there's an English version. So click the English and it'll pop up. They're offering a lot of different rallies now, which is really fun. Cool. And there's more popping up throughout the world, which I'm really excited to learn about. And then how do people find out more about Excels yeah. and how do they find out more about X Overland and you as a traveler? Yeah. So you can go to xoverland.com is our main website. Uh, we just launched a whole new network and we're really excited about that. We'll be pulling in. And what's, the name, what's the name of the new network? Yeah. It's called the Overlander Network. Do they just go overlandernetwork.com? Is that how they... It's actually special.tv okay. slash Overlander Network. Okay. Um, and that will take them to it. It's a, the first time we've done a kind of behind the paywall and we're really excited about it. It's opening a lot of doors to have future storytellers on there that we can showcase separate projects we can do as well as doing what we do with X Overland. What an amazing concept. I think that we need that in this space, a way for, because creating beautiful content is time consuming and expensive yes. and people... <laughs> It's only fair that they are compensated in yeah, some way. So absolutely. it makes sense to have a network like that where the creator and the creative and the network manager is able to all make yeah. some fair compensation from that. Yeah, we're really excited about it. And then my own is uh, thexels.com or you can find me there on Instagram under Rochelle Croft or thexels. The XLs kind of comes and goes because it's it's sure. not a priority. It's a side and it kind of pops up when I'm in rally season. I'm hoping in the future to be able to offer more uh, beginner classes for women. I just got asked actually right before I popped in here. Awesome. She's like, when are you doing that? I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> but I need to do it. So, yeah, that's yeah. great. And then what is next for you? What's the next big adventure for Rochelle? Now that you Ooh. you've done all these amazing things, what's next? Yeah. Great question. So where do you want to go? Yeah. Well, my next adventure for this year's Rebel is I'm actually going to be their live show host. Perfect. So they do a live show um, every day of the rally. It's morning. Um, they usually do a course check-in afternoon and then a show at night. Mm. So you can tune in live and we give the highlights of the day. I'm really going to be in the competition since I have been a competitor. They're excited to have me come on and kind of think strategy of why teams made the choices they did and where I think they'll go. So that's going to be when, it. When does the rebel start? It's soon, isn't it? It's October 7th. I Very believe soon. <laughs> like a week after I'm home from expo. Yeah. Wow. I'll, I'll have a week home, check in with the kiddos, turn around <laughs> and fly out. But I'm really excited about it. That's amazing. Rochelle, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Clay and you both are like some of my dearest friends. And I'm so grateful for both of you and everything that you guys have accomplished. I think it is such not only a testament to achieving your dreams, if you put enough energy and gumption behind it, but also being an inspiration to others. You guys have always done such a wonderful job of inspiring people to go see the world. And we are all so grateful for that. Thank you, Scott. I mean, you inspired us, so <laughs> it all comes back around. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rochelle. And we thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time.